Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for First St. Charles United Methodist Church in downtown St. Charles, Missouri. We are so glad that you're here, and it's our prayer that you feel safe, welcome, and wanted in this space. If you're interested in finding out more about us or supporting our ministries, you can connect with us online at firststcharlesumc.org. Today's scripture comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received one denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is God's word, living and growing in us. Glory be to God. There was comfort in the rhythm. Every week at the appointed hour, My brother and I were downstairs in the family room because that's where we kept our one black and white TV. As we sat cross-legged on the floor and watched, the man of steel, the mild-mannered Clark Kent, who was transformed in a phone booth into Superman, the otherworldly hero from another planet who was faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Every week, it was the same black and white view with its comforting focus for our lives. And every week, we were taught the civic values of truth, justice, and the American way. It was a good life, and I, for one, don't want to tug on Superman's cape or spit into the wind. It was only later that I learned that the motto, Truth, Justice, and the American Way, became a thing for Superman on a radio serial in the 1940s as a way to cheer on the American military efforts in World War II, and that it was revived in the 1950s during the Cold War at the height of the paranoia of McCarthyism. It was only much, much later that I've learned that as Superman has evolved, 
He's had a number of mottos, including the globally envisioned truth, justice, and a better tomorrow, and the more inclusive truth, justice, truth, tolerance, and justice. That one appears as a pointed statement connected to his son, John Kent, who came out as bisexual. I gotta say, Superman is still my hero. As he has evolved, maybe so can I. But the basics, the part I was taught from ought, clearly connects truth and justice with what our country provides and the promise that it'll give us superpowers. Of course, the problem is what poses for truth and justice in the civic realm is not what is certain in God's kingdom. And might we be cautioned to not confuse or conflate the heresies of Christian nationalism with what makes us truly great in God's kingdom. To that end, Jesus tells a story. Before we get to it, we need to look at its setting because both before and after it, Matthew has Jesus saying, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. In the first instance, Peter has just asked Jesus what he and the other disciples can expect as a reward for their loyalty to him. Then as a follow-up to the story, James and John's mother comes up to Jesus and pleads her case for why her boys should get thrones in the kingdom, one to the left and one to the right. If ever there is a more clearly stated scripture showing that neither the left nor the right gets it, I don't know it. Jesus would have us know that the values of the kingdom will pretty much offend everyone and most certainly our civic sense for how it should be. That's the framing for our story. We really want to be great? Pull up a seat because it's not so black and white and truth and justice don't look the same in God's kingdom. God's kingdom, as Jesus tells it, is like an owner who really messes with all our sacralized assumptions for how it's supposed to be, of the order of things, of how we are to live our lives and what it takes to live the good life. We know the rules, the ones that teach us that we should want to be the head of the class, the first in line, the smartest, the hardest worker. What's fair is fair. But Jesus' owner is ready to offend us all because, well, as my mama used to say, his house, his rule, it's crazy stuff and not like any justice we know or would vote for if given the chance. Everyone, I mean everyone in the vineyard, will be paid the same. 
no matter how hard you worked or how long you stood in the sun, no one goes away empty-handed. And in the final tweak, the slackers get their check first. The best employees are paid last. They're the ones who had been there since dawn. Early in the day, as Jesus tells it, the owner of a vineyard goes to the marketplace. He's got acres of grapevines, and now they're heavy with purple clusters of fruit swollen with sweet juice. It's harvest time. So by 6 a.m., he's in the town square rounding up workers. Before they sign on, a wage is agreed upon, the usual wage for a day's work. Three hours later, 9 a.m., the man is back in town and sees unemployed people in the marketplace. He hires them and says, I'll pay you what's right. At noon, he does the same thing. At 3 p.m., it happens again. Now, in that culture, a workday ran 12 hours from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. But this man does a bizarre thing. He goes back into town at 5 o'clock, just one hour left in the day. Does he have a deadline to meet? The story, like the man, doesn't need a reason. So, once again, he finds people just standing around. He says, why are you standing here idle all day? They reply, no one's hired us. I don't know about you, but I've got a notion about the kind of people nobody hired. They're likely the kind that some people call losers, bums, druggies, drunks. Maybe they've slept half the day. Maybe they've spaced out. But the man tells them, you also go into the vineyard. They work for one easy hour, right alongside those who work three hours, six hours, nine hours, the whole 12-hour day. Then the whistle blows. Yabba-dabba-doo! Line them all up for their pay, says the boss to his foreman. Start with the lake, latecomers and finish with the ones who worked all day. As each worker approaches the pay station, each one gets an envelope. When the one-hour workers get theirs, a lot of whooping and jumping and high-fives break out. Folk at the end of the line send up the question, what's the celebration? The answer comes back down the line, the boss paid him a full day's wage. Hot diggity, they say. Here comes a bonus. They can't wait to open their envelopes. And when they do, a day's wage. Just what they had agreed to work for. They're furious. They say to the boss, you made these one-hour guys equal to us? We worked 12 long, sweaty hours, and you give the guys who dilly-dally all day and pick a few grapes in the sunset, the same pay as us? Treating everyone the same is fair. Treating everyone the same when they're not the same 
is insane. I, for one, am right there with them. Aren't you? Can you feel what they feel? In fact, haven't most of us already felt the sting of unfairness? Those of you who drive automobiles know the scene. You're on the highway. There's an accident somewhere up ahead and everybody merges into one single lane. You're at the bottom of a hill so you can see the impossibly long line of cars that is just creeping along inch by inch. You look at your watch. You check MapQuest to see how long it's stretched out. That's when you see in your rear-view mirror, this hot shot in a 4x4 pickup roaring past everybody in the shoulder, speeding past all of you, counting on someone to allow him to nose his way over and let the jerk in. Can you feel it? You and I did it the right way, the slow, long way, and Billy Bob just flew on by, got way ahead of us, and it's not fair. Or, let's say you're a student, and you work hard to make a good grade. You read the assignments, take good notes, study hard for the test, knock yourself out on the big project, and you get your final grade. Yeehaw! It's an A! Then you run into Tiffany, the little cutie pie who brags that she got an A thanks to artificial intelligence that she used to write her papers, while the real students had to study. She even giggles when she asks what you got. Feel that? Didn't you just get devalued? Why are you upset? You got an A. She got an A. It's the same thing you might well scream, no, it's not, and it's not fair. One more example. You have a job and a salary. There are people above you who make more than you. It's how things are. Time comes for the new fiscal year, and you learn that everybody is getting a 3% raise. And you think about it. They'll tell you everybody gets the same 3% all around, but 3% for those with big salaries will dwarf your piddling raise. And you know who works harder. You're there early. You stay late. Take work home while they're out playing golf and schmoozing. Fairness? You're in the trenches falling behind while the fat cats get a little bit fatter. You feel it. But did you catch how the boss replies? Listen, pal, I've done you no wrong. Didn't we agree on the daily wage? Take what you earned and get out. Am I not allowed to do with what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? The parable doesn't report an answer to that question. The offended workers just fade away, and the question hangs in the air as if we're the ones meant to answer. 
Are you envious because I am generous? Are you ready now to work out the puzzle? Jesus introduced this parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like this. This is how it is with people in God's domain. And he tells this story. Leaves us feeling the sting of unfairness. We can feel ourselves saying to the owner of the vineyard, you're unfair. And to us, he replies, what? I, what I am is generous. Are you envious? How would you answer that? If we feel what the grievance committee feels, we're pretty much forced to be honest and say, yeah, we are envious people. But here's the question we really need to face and to answer. Why is it that in hearing this story, we all, or almost all, identify with the ones who felt cheated? Why is it that we feel ourselves entitled? Jesus showed us five shifts of workers. The workers in four of those shifts got called in late and got paid for more hours than they worked. How did Jesus know that almost all of us would identify with those who felt they didn't get enough? Or that we deserved more because we were here first? Didn't he know that our way of looking sideways to see what others are getting and measuring our lives against theirs? Did he tell this parable to expose that ugly part of us to ourselves and invite us to get over it? How? By taking a new look at which end of that payment line we're really standing in? Do we really fit the picture of people who serve the purposes of God from the dawn to the dusk of our lives? Have we really been so hard at it or so good at it? God never promised any of us a wage. God just came to find us and give us a life that no one else could, called us to the happiest purpose, crowned us with meaning and set us into the company of the supremely fortunate. Standing in the payment line, we've been much too quick to notice and to resent how certain generosities have apparently been handed to others and not to us. Let's rub our eyes again and look again. God isn't fair. God is generous. And this isn't the bargaining end of the line we're standing in. It's the fortunate end where grace abounds, where there is every good reason for whooping and leaping and high fives. Before us is the very gift of life the wondrous universe itself, and the cross of the one who died for us. 
Who of us has earned this? And if we didn't, how shall we begrudge God's generosity to anyone else? Suddenly, what we're seeing is not the same black and white view with its comforting focus for our lives. Truth, justice, they look differently in the kingdom way and our evolving continues.